Hello and welcome to the Eco Business Podcast. I'm Robin Hicks, Deputy Editor of Eco Business, Asia's leading sustainability publication. On today's show, we're going to talk about palm oil. But rather than focus on the problem that gets the most attention, deforestation and the plight of orangutans, we're going to be talking about the human story behind the world's most controversial commodity. A fair working wage and better working conditions for workers is arguably the most effective way to end deforestation in the palm oil sector, since better paid farmers under less pressure to clear forests to feed their families. Not only that, plantations are more productive, there is less staff turnover and absenteeism, and multinational companies feel safer buying from companies that treat their people fairly. Late last year, the industry's biggest certification body, the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil, RSPO, which is the sponsor of this podcast, put in place a new framework to improve human rights in the palm oil sector. Measures taken include a plan to introduce a decent working wage for workers on certified plantations, ensure that the rights of local and indigenous communities impacted by palm oil production are not violated, and vulnerable groups such as migrants, refugees and women are fairly treated. Doing all this is not easy. Social issues such as worker abuse are much harder to detect than deforestation, which can be picked up by satellites. So what are the challenges faced in setting better human rights standards in the palm oil trade and how can RSPO ensure that their new rules are adhered to? To discuss this on the podcast today, we have Kamini Visvanadan, Human Rights and Social Standards Manager for RSPO, and Daryl Dalgado, Research and Stakeholder Engagement Lead for Workers' Rights Nonprofit Verite, which helped to draw up RSPO's principles and criteria for human rights. Welcome to the podcast. Thank, Thank you. you. Happy to be here. Great. Um, so first question for you, Kamini. Um, it appears to me that the environment story has overshadowed the people story in palm oil. I want to ask you why you feel that is. Thanks, Robin. See, the thing about um, when we look at the environmental issues as opposed to the human rights issues, when it comes to the environment, it's very visible. So I think one thing that I can use as an example would be the haze issue. Mm. When the haze happened a few years ago in Southeast Asia, it was visible to all of us. We all saw the smoke, we all felt the smoke, we were all affected by the haze. But when it comes to human rights, it's, it's not very, well, for lack of a better word, it's not very visible. We don't see the impact on the people, what's the harm that's being caused. You know, environmental issues grab so much more attention because you can imagine, you can imagine that little orangutan there and having his home destroyed. But to have, um, you know, to have a look at how people, on the other hand, they're not having a say in how the communities, their communities are being managed. I think that is the reason why. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, your point on the, the visual impact of palm oil, we can easily see through satellites, um, vast areas of forest being removed, but the, the more invisible impact of, of people work on plantations are, are far um, better hidden. Um, Daryl, do you want to speak to that point? Yes, on the um, nature of the issues, when you're talking about human rights issues, their very nature is that, I mean, for them to become issues, they have to be hidden. They have to be um, uh, concealed. They have to be covert and clandestine. And, and that's why that's how they become issues. And by the time the issues become visible, it's usually very late. Um, be, 
by the time, let's say, a worker situation has been determined to be a situation of forced labor, that means a whole range of different issues in combination have already taken place. And I'd also like to say something about that, the fact that human rights violations only become interesting when they have to do with traffic labor or modern slavery or forced labor or the killings of human rights defenders. That's that's truly horrible, but it also makes us blind to the daily things that happen to a worker's life or to a, a person's life in the community. And these are the things that are systemic. And these are the things that truly need to be addressed before they explode into something spectacular. And so you mentioned what were the biggest dangers that people face working on palm oil plantations? Um, Phys- are you talking about like physical? Just, physical yeah, just in a, um, the, the physical dangers that people may face during the course of a, a day. Um, snakes is obviously one I mean, of them. Snakes. Yeah. Exhaustion, I think. Exhaustion and just like if you slip and there was no one with you and people don't have cell phones, they don't have radios. Mm -hmm. So that's another one. Um, What companies have tried to do to mitigate that is, you know, they assign a mandor, Mm. like a field supervisor to rove and, you know, just check on everyone. But, But still, you know, that's not a guarantee that workers are they work in gangs I think they work in groups right yeah so those that those that can afford it um let workers work in groups of two or work uh groups of three and that that's a really good system because um and 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 their production target is set on a group basis and and you know it's safer for them because they're they're with one or two other people Mm. while they're out there and how are they how are they monitored though I mean, simply now you've got, I guess, a monitor that sounds quite um, big brother, but how for their own safety, um, say there is an accident, are there there drones or are they these helicopters to occasionally Mm, check on their people? How does it work? So there's a field supervisor who roves. And if you're lucky to be working in a plantation that allows you to work with other people, people like in, in small groups then you you have that one or two other people who can you know go and and get help otherwise if you're in a smallish plantation you're really just working alone and then that's and these are also the same plantations that allow you to bring in family members mm. or friends to help you meet meet the target you know mm. so yeah yeah they're pretty tough targets to they to are they are usually. they are they are quite tough to hit and um uh, i was talking to field supervisors who are also um penalized if his group his gang does not meet the quota so there's a quota that's set on an individual basis and a group basis and then the mandor has a quota to make sure that everyone else's quota is met so we're always bringing this up with them we're saying this is a recipe for disaster because the mandor will do everything he can Mm. to get his incentive a mandor being mandor being the field supervisor like the group supervisor so no matter how much you train your supervisor to treat your workers nicely and decently on the other hand, he needs to make sure that his incentives are met. So he will drive, you know, people <laughs> to work hard mm. and he will impose disciplinary actions and all of that. So, it, you know, it, it's it's a combination of that. But I was also very surprised 
to know in, that in one plantation, they were allowing women to become harvesters if they wanted to. It mm. was, yeah, it was solely based on skill and willingness. And that, also, that's a good thing, right? It is a great mm-hmm. thing. And also women, even if they are unmarried, are entitled to the same benefits, housing especially. Mm. And this is... This is significant in a country like Indonesia, where their benefits are usually tied to the male member of the family, to the spouse. Mm. So even if you are the employee in that in that company that provides housing to everyone, if you're a woman, you may not be entitled to it, um, unless your husband is also employed. But in this particular small company, I was surprised that oh, women, unmarried women, single women, you know, they were provided... Mm-hmm. Housing, so yeah. and you can, there are. So that's some the kind of mindset. Surprises. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 a system, and it's also a mindset. You know, right, right. It's both cultural. So how do you change that perception? Because when we talk about women's rights, you also sometimes say the women are the people who are putting themselves in that vulnerable position, and that's they're true. not moving from yeah. you that. Yeah, because they, they don't recognize them. the you know. The mm. I mean, oppression yeah. that, that they're in. But it, it really was interesting because the, the plantations were right next to each other. And they're both like very um, old and traditional plantations. One had this rule that was very anti-women, I thought, uh, wherein your benefits and your entitlements are tied to the family, male family member. The other one was perfectly fine with women being on their payroll and women being you know uh, provided housing and you know it was it was interesting to see and my my understanding was that it's really business that's driving and I think the other plantation recognized that women are actually good workers and if we treat them well <laughs> they actually bring back you know productive good things to to us so, yeah I just wanted to ask you about the the scale um, of some of these problems. Again, we know how how much forests are being lost mm-hmm. to palm oil. Football pitches every second. There's there's lots of data on that. But the human rights impact of palm oil. Um, what's how, just how big an issue is it? I think the risks are very real. They're there. They're present, and I think we are aware of it. We have, um, you know, issues of workers. Workers are the only, I mean, I think they're out there and it's very big. But there are also risks to children, you know, from the sector. Mm-hmm. You have elements of forced labor, which, as Daryl said, you know, it might not be so obvious or it might not be um, trafficking or slavery. But there are elements which put people in a vulnerable position. Mm-hmm. And those things are prevalent. We also have um, more issues coming around human rights defenders, how these people are also being subject to vulnerability right now. So I think there is prevalent issues, but I think what's more important is also that there is an understanding that there are these issues and they are, you know, they do exist. And this understanding, I think, has been becoming clearer and clearer throughout the years. And I think that's also sort of reflected in our current standards. You will see that we've got a lot of um, improvements from our previous standards or from the previous revision. Of course, you're referring there to RSPO's new principles and criteria yes. and standard, standards and framework on, on human rights um, that were released in um, November 2018, right? Yes, that's right. Mm. Um, so, so Daryl, do you want to speak? My, my question was about the scale 
of human rights abuses in the palm oil sector. Again, we know about the environmental mm. impact or have a better idea. Uh, can you speak to the scale of human rights abuses in the palm oil sector? It's, it's quite difficult to make a proper determination of, of the scale. We know that human rights abuses can come in small and big ways, and they happen in both big and small operations as well. Um, I, I think maybe the other way to look about it is to ask what is it about the industry or the sector, the way it is set up, the different production processes, the worker demographics, maybe even the pricing mechanisms that drive worker rights violations. And if you look at how standardized the setup is actually across the different um, continents, and you'll understand what the common risks are to people. I mean, the, the sector is labor intensive, you know, they are vast, they're usually in remote locations, and they rely on the work of some of the, you know, poorest uh, laborers, workers who don't really have much choice in life. And, and that is almost a recipe for, you know, abuses to happen. I'm not saying that it's happening in every single plantation. What I'm saying is there are um, like inherent risks in the in the sector that can give rise to these abuses. But it's definitely true that those uh, plantations and mills that are more open or are subjected to surveillance, to monitoring, um, those that receive a lot of stakeholder action from NGOs, they actually have better practices, you know, because they're more visible. It's the ones that we don't get to see or hear about that worry us, you know, as an NGO. Mm. Yeah. And again, as an NGO, right. um, these problems exist in all the big countries like Ghana, Colombia, Indonesia, Malaysia, where there are big palm oil plantations, that the issues are similar across these countries. That's true, but also in small plantations where there are workers doing manual labor, there will always be risks. Mm. So, Kamini, um, you mentioned the introduction of RSPO's principles and criteria um, for human rights. I want to ask you a specific question about um, the introduction of a decent living wage for palm oil workers and their families. Um, I'm interested by the, the term decent. Mm -hmm. um, what does that actually mean? Um, how do you define a decent uh, living wage for a palm oil worker, say, in, in Indonesia? All right. Um, see, that's the interesting thing about this whole um, concept of a decent living wage. It looks at what amounts to a decent standard of life. So the very definition that we have adopted within the RSPO, basically um, what a decent standard of living is, or so rather what a decent living wage is, it is the remuneration received for a standard work week by a worker in a particular place, which is sufficient to afford a decent standard of living for the worker and his or her family. So basically what this um, concept does is it looks at what is the decent standard of specific things or specific um, fact se um, segments of things that you need in your life. It looks at a basket, takes, adopts a basket methodology. So it looks at what would be decent, what would a decent housing amount to? What's the cost of a decent housing in that particular area where this worker works in? What is the, uh, what is decent food? So what is a nutritious and a balanced diet? 
How much would that equate to for the entire family? It takes into account all these um, basic necessities, but it doesn't look at it from a very basic point of view. It looks at it from a decent point of view. Mm. So it it allows a person to have a, what's the word for it? Um, besides decent, it, it allows a person to have a meaningful lifestyle. And it looks at it from an account of how much would a, full, um, a full-time equivalent, so how many people who works full-time in that house, how much would that, um, that amount, that income need to have a decent standard of life for a family. So it does look into issues of, um, when it looks into the factors, it does look into the jurisdictional needs. Mm. So how much would a person, a family in Indonesia need to accord a decent life will be very different from a value of a person somewhere in, say, Colombia, rural Colombia. What the, the methodology that we have adopted does is we look into what are the local needs, but you base it against international standards. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah, it's a very interesting um, concept, actually. A very difficult one to do, as I mentioned, to to establish the difference between basic, decent, and meaningful Mm -hmm. requires a lot of research and actually talking on the ground to people about what they uh, want and need for their their families and. and how we yeah, what exactly they they want out of life, I guess. Um, Daryl, you worked on formulating um, RSPO's framework. How do you see it, and to what extent are people living and working on palm oil plantations not getting a decent uh, living wage at the moment? That that's uh, very interesting. I've just come from uh, doing field visits in Indonesia, and I was surprised, pleasantly surprised, to know that. Even um, standard plantations, you know, I'm not talking about plantations and mills that are at the forefront of, you know, pushing uh, standards to their upper limits. I'm talking about just, you know, basic plantations and mills. And they are, as far as what we were um, provided, the information we were provided, they they are providing already minimum wage and additional benefits such as housing, school um, tuition for for children and, and all of these other things without even knowing the concept of a living wage. And when I asked them, why are you doing this? And they said, it's really because we want to keep our workers. It's difficult to find workers. So I found it interesting that they were, in a way, implementing elements of a decent living wage but for purposes of worker retention, it, it, it made me think that there is a business case to implementing a, a decent living wage. It's very intimidating, the concept of it, the formula, you know, breaking mm. things down into basic elements. It's, it's very intimidating. And, and, and to be honest, Kamini and I and our colleagues, we've been facing a lot of challenges, a lot, you know, some, some pushback, but only because of how... I think it's been made into a formula. But when you talk to people about what this means, like what Kamini was saying, it's about giving people a chance to live humane, decent lives. And the values, the amounts may differ from country to country, but the elements and what we think, you know, are necessary to live like a, a decent human being in this planet are actually the same. You mentioned the, the word pushback. Pushback yes. from who? Pushback from companies? My second my a question following on to that is the cost. We are talking earlier on about the cost for companies of introducing a, a decent living wage for, for workers. 
the, the pushback has come from mainly from those who are required to implement them. Um, which are the the growers, the companies, and it, it's it's understandable because there is a cost involved. You know, in order to evolve them from the 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 old pay system into what we're requiring them to mm -hmm. do now, there it involves a lot of cost. It involves developing systems, training people, which can also translate to cost. Uh, but they might be surprised to learn once they've started <laughs> implementing the formula that they're actually above. Some of them are actually above, above the the requirement, but and and many of them are on their way to meeting the requirement. But having said that, I do understand that some companies will really struggle. And again, to to bring the discussion back to cost, that that cost needs to be shared. Uh, the, mm -hmm. the ensuring that everyone in the you know in the sector, especially the the lowest ranked workers, live uh, being receive a d decent living wage, that responsibility must be shared. And right now, what the growers and the the companies are feeling is that it's only their burden solely, <laughs> and that's quite you know heavy for them to bear. What can be done to um, better protect the rights of women on palm oil plantations who aren't necessarily recognised as part of the formal um, workforce? I think, yeah, I, this this happens really because um, women are seen to sub supplement the income of the um, the male in the family. So more often than not, they end up as casual workers or temporary workers simply because they're accompanying their husband. And I think um, we've seen reports in the past where they show that women have been continuously been employed as casual workers for years. So I think that is something that we recognised during the, um, the review of the PNC. And when we were looking at making the PNC a bit more, um, a lot more gender inclusive, we were looking on how do you make this meaningful and systemic changes. So I think one thing that was very obvious that we have um, improved on is the requirement of equal pay for the same kind of work. Um, ensuring that the payroll documents now even include um, information or for the remuneration that is um, paid to family workers who are assisting. So now it doesn't only um, recognise that the worker himself or herself is the only one that's, um, that's bringing in the dough, so to speak, for the family, but it also includes how, how the other family members are contributing. So this formalises the fact that the woman, is, the woman in the family is also contributing to the household income. That's one thing. We've also made sure that, you know, permanent and full-time employment is used for all core work. So in the past, you would be able to use, like, for instance, pesticides or sprayers. They would normally be, they would normally make up the female population. But right now, because that is a core work, that's not something that's seasonal, you have to make these people full-time employers. Oh, sorry, employees. So if they are full-time employees, they are then getting the benefits that comes with being a full-time employee. And that includes, you know, maternity protection. Um, that includes um, equal remuneration, um, among other things. Daryl, anything else you'd like to add to that on how women need to be better protected on palm oil plantations? I just like to reiterate the need to 
um, educate and empower the women themselves. I mean, you can have all of the policies and the procedures and the committees in place, but if women don't know what they are entitled to, if they have no opportunity to talk amongst themselves and to, you know, represent themselves meaningfully, then we're almost sure that those policies are going to fail. But also, um, I think it's really a mindset change that needs to happen. But as, you know, some people have said, um, mindsets are more difficult to change than policies and laws. I think the laws will be, the policies will be in place and mindsets will take some time to to catch up. But everyone has a role to play. The RSPO, NGOs, buyers and consumer brands, governments, they have a huge role to play. I think um, it's easy for us who come from certain countries to imagine that women and their rights and protections are, you know, embedded and mainstream, but mm. that's not true for other countries and other locations. And that's really what needs to happen, the mainstreaming and the embedding of uh, respect and protection for women into all of the processes and decisions that are made. Indeed. Um, another vulnerable part of the uh, Palmer workforce is the migrant uh, labourer. Um, a question back to you again, Dowell, is... Um, given the, the high proportion of migrant labour on palm oil plantations from Indonesia, Malaysia and other countries, can traffic labour ever be um, stripped out of the palm oil uh, sector's workforce? My quick answer is yes, it can be uh, stripped out, as you say, and uh, migrant labour does not necessarily equate to traffic labour, although the, the elements are certainly there. You know, the, the element of movement, of um, coercion. Um, but, and, and I just want to, to correct a, a notion that um, Indonesian sector is reliant on, on migrant labor. It's not as, as um, heavily reliant on migrant labor as Malaysia is, for mm-hmm. instance. But um, trafficking happens when workers are moved from one place to another against their will and they end up in a situation of exploitation. Migrant workers in palm oil, in the palm oil sector are especially vulnerable to trafficking because of the movement and because it's easy for them to fall into a situation of exploitation. But that's where the role of you know, employers and governments and RSBO come in because workers don't have to end up in situations of exploitation and they don't need to be forced to travel or they don't need to be forced to work in plantations. They don't need to be hoodwinked or deceived into thinking that they will have, you know, a certain kind of life in plantations. You know, at the point of recruitment, you can already provide workers the information that they need so that they can make the right decision while traveling. And then, by the way, in traveling, it doesn't matter how many miles you move Mm. the person. It can be just a couple of feet, really, to a thousand thousand miles as long as there was movement and there was, you know, harboring of... um, So uh, what I'm trying to say is several things can go wrong Mm -hmm. uh, from the movement of the worker, uh, from from, uh, the worker's uh, origin to destination. But there are also several good things that you can do at each point of that journey. And, And that's why I'm confident when I say yes 
trafficking does not need to be equated to migrant labor in uh, in plantations and in in, in the palm oil sector. Indeed, and RSPO's um, new framework does seek to address that, doesn't it? Of of ensuring that uh, migrant workers are taken care of and their rights protected. Um, can you speak to that, Kamini, about what RSPO's framework does to protect that mm. part of the workforce? Yeah, definitely. I think that um, taking from taking from what Daryl has said, it's not so much the risk of workers being trafficked that we are afraid of. It's the risk of they might fall into an exploitative situation. And this can happen on so many levels and in so many ways. For instance, um, a worker whose uh, passport is retained, for instance, that might not necessarily be forced labour. But, however, if his passport is retained, that impinges his freedom of movement. If he cannot move, he cannot resign or terminate his employment. Then, is he in a situation of forced labour? Probably so. So the thing, the thing that we have or what we have tried to sort of mitigate this exploitative behaviours or this potential risk of exploitation is really to go and look into what are the specific elements that can put a worker in a vulnerable position. So if we're looking at it from a migrant, uh, migrant worker sort of situation, we are looking at it from contract substitution. Are they promised one thing in their country of origin only to come down to, let's say, Malaysia and find out that, oh, okay, I'm not going to be working near an urban area, but I'm far, far away somewhere else. Or I am supposed to come here and work in a restaurant, but there I am in some palm oil, industry, um, palm oil plantation in the middle of nowhere. So the PNCs look into specific areas like that. So it looks at contract substitution, for instance, retention of passports, um, freedom of movement, the ability to resign. Am I missing anything else? Recruitment fees. Recruitment fees, yeah. Not payment of no recruitment fees. All these elements are prohibited. And those are also encapsulated in the principles and criteria. And I think what's really important is that now we take a very systemic approach to things. So if you look in the PNC, you will see that workers or, sorry, rather the employers, they need to ensure that they have systems in place. They have policies in place that mitigates these potential impacts. How can the rights of Indigenous people, um, local communities um, and the people who, who protect the land that they feel it's been infringed upon, how can they be protected? So I think, let's let, um, if I could break it down, I think uh, when it comes to Indigenous communities, um, our new PNC, well, this was also present in the old PNC, but it's been restructured in a way where it's easier for us to pluck out now. So we have our principle four, which is solely focused on community well-being. And in this uh, particular principle, you will see that um, there are elements that are in place which allows for um, the community to protect themselves and for the companies as well to ensure that wherever they are going in, whatever frontier that they are venturing into is conflict-free. And one such way of doing it is through uh, free prior and informed consent or FPIC as we, we call it. With FPIC, um, which is something that our members are required to have, an assessment that they need to do, the members have to ensure that consent is sought from any community who has any rights on that particular land which they are going into. So they might very well have a legal title on this particular area. But if you do not have FPIC, you cannot, you cannot um, develop unless uh, until and unless you have managed to compensate the work um, the people who are there and they have agreed to it 
final few questions for you guys. Um, which are the most urgent human rights um, issues that need to be tackled right now? Um, and perhaps a final question, what, what will the ideal palm oil industry of the future look like from a human rights perspective? Oh, that's such a huge question. Um, I, I want to talk about what the RSPO is doing from an aspirational point of view. I mean, the, the decent living wage, to me personally, is really a way to communicate to the public, to people, to all stakeholders, that this is what we want the sector to look like in the future. You know, the sector has always been known to be one where work is, you know, the 3D kind of work, difficult, demeaning, dangerous. People don't work as harvesters in a plantation because they love harvesting. It's usually because they don't have a choice. They don't have the, you know, skill set that can give them upward mobility. They don't have the right economic status that will provide them options in life. And, um, and, and because of this, there has been for a long time a kind of race to the bottom approach. But by putting out, you know, the DLW, D Decent Living Wage Standard, and other standards that are in the PNC, my understanding of it is that the RSPO is um, ready to make a statement to the public that we want the sector to be a good place to work in. You know, not just a place where people will go because they've been trafficked and they have no choice or a place where they will go because it's the only one that's available. So so that one is, is both difficult and challenging, but also important. And the other one, I think, is still the issue of migrant labor and, and migrant labor conflated with issues of refugees. I, I don't want to open a new topic. I just want to put it out there because um, the, the issue of, of, of refugees and displaced people have started to be conflated with issues of, of workers who do migrate deliberately for work. And so that's one group. And, you're, and then you're talking about a group of people who are forced to migrate. And because they are forced to migrate or to leave their, play, their, their, their countries or places of origin, they become very vulnerable to being trafficked. So we are hoping that, you know, that does not end up in, in the nexus, which is a, a palm plantation. So that, that for me, that's, that's, that's still a concern that uh, we are trying to monitor very, very closely. Mm, okay. Um, Kimini, do you want to speak to that as well? Yeah, I think I would take it from a very technical point of view if you're looking at things. Um, so RSPO has a vision, which is to make sustainable palm oil the norm. And what does that mean? That also means that we impact people. Um, I mean, obviously, the, the industry has an impact on people. But when we look at the impact, what we want is a sustainable, you know, sustainable livelihood, poverty reduction, human rights protected, respected and remedied. So going along those lines, if I would say what would be an ideal version of um, the industry really taking from what Daryl says that you know people want to work in the industry it's not looked at as something that we do it because we have to we're not putting people in a vulnerable situation um, we are respecting that you know a person who works in the industry they have a, a they are accorded a decent standard of living you know um, it's not 
people living in poor uh, in in total poverty uh, we're looking at the communities communities are willfully being part of the um the industry or the the agriculture commodity so to speak um we're not land grabbing we're not forcing people out of their out of their homes so i think that if we're looking if we are able to move the the perception of the um of the markets really if we're able to move that perception i think that we would have probably reached our vision of making sustainable palm oil the norm and therefore you know looking at us rspo then reaching its um vision and mission um a really good place to leave it thank you both for joining us on the eco business podcast thank you thank you for having us this podcast was hosted by eco business at the sdg co a co-working space for sustainable development organizations in asia eco business is asia's leading media company serving the region's sustainability community This podcast is part of the series Palm Oil Conversations, sponsored by the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil. Join the conversation by visiting eco-business.com. Follow us on social media or subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening. Music